December at Grace, Emmanuel, God is with us. That's been our theme. We began on December 1st with the birth announcement to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, where the angel came to Joseph and he said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She has not been unfaithful. She has not been immoral. This is from the Holy Spirit. Now take her as your wife and the baby will be born. You'll call him Jesus and this will fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which, is, which means God with us. Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee, Lived, preached, called disciples, revealed himself, crucified on the cross outside of Jerusalem, raised on the third day, is God with us? And then the second message we heard from Matthew chapter 1, this Jesus who is God with us came to save us from our sins that we might be reconciled to God. And then the third message we heard was from Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is with us because he has given us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit now baptizing us with fire, that fire purifying and progressively making us more and more like Jesus Christ. God is with us to sanctify us. Today, Christmas Day, Matthew chapter 2, God is with us in our sorrows and in our suffering. Stand with me in honor of God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem, of Judea for so it is written by the prophet and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw Mary, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and and in all that region 
who were two years old and under, according to the time when he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, for they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Few people notice the sorrow and the suffering that accompanied the birth and the childhood of Jesus. Very few people expect to come to church on Christmas Day and hear a sermon about sorrow and suffering. And yet so many people who come to church on Christmas Day do so with a lot of sorrows and a lot of suffering. And many people who want to be here today are not because they're at home and they're suffering. Well, there are a few things that are very clear in the Bible and from history. Here are a few. The world that Jesus was born into was a world of sorrows and suffering and sin and evil. And also when Jesus came to us through this virgin conception and birth, he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, including Isaiah 53, that says he himself is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And another thing we know from the Bible and history is that the people who were called by God (coughs) into the events of the birth and the life of Jesus, those who actually received Jesus by faith still had sorrow and suffering as a result of receiving Jesus. Mary and Joseph were looked on with suspicion by unbelievers their whole lives. A virgin birth? Very few people believe that. They suffered in their reputation because they were called by God to be a part of the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2 tells us of the account of just a few days after Jesus' birth, he's in the temple. There's an old man, Simeon, and he prophesies. He rejoices. I've seen the salvation of the Lord. And then he turns to Mary and he says, This child will be opposed, and there'll be a sword that'll pierce your soul. Mother of Jesus, there'll be a sword that will pierce your soul because you will love this one, and you will raise this one, but you will lose this one. Sorrow and suffering. It's a part of the world into which Jesus was born, and it's a part of the world of those who receive Jesus, and it's a part of our world today. Disillusionment comes from expectation. Don't be disillusioned. 
The Bible never promised an end to sorrow and suffering at the first advent of Jesus. That comes later, and it will come. But it comes later. Be encouraged. The Bible does promise the people of faith in Christ that he is Emmanuel. He is with us in our sorrows and in our sufferings. So rather than treat Christmas like the day of denial, with avoidance as a way to happiness on this happy morn, Today, let's hear a real promise for the reality of life that God is with us in our sorrows and our sufferings. Because Christmas is not to be a day of escape from reality. Christmas is not a day to take a break from the brokenness or push a pause on pain. We know that. We're experiencing that in our own congregation. Christmas is Christ with us to deal with the sin that started all of this suffering in the first place. Christmas is Christ with us to save us and to sanctify us and to see us through, to see us through all of these sorrows so that every day we can trust and obey and hope all the way to the end. Christmas is serious business. Christmas is serious. It's about a savior born into this kind of world. And you know, by looking <clears throat> at the reality of both life and the reality of our savior, Jesus Christ, in fact, talking about sorrow and suffering could be the most hope-filled and joy-filled Christmas message that we've ever heard. Because it's real. What does that have to do with Matthew 2? A lot. <coughs> we see in this chapter the world into which Jesus was born. We see in this chapter the hand of God on his son and on his people in the world. And we get a glimpse from this chapter of the world to come for God's people who are in God's son. First, we see the world into which Jesus was born. I would, not be, I would not want to be tasked to write the little headings that go in the Bible translations. You know, they weren't there in the Bible, by the way. So if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 2, mine says, The Visit of the Wise Men. Yes, but... Look closely. Verse 1. <coughs> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now when you read the chapter, you want to rewrite the chapter heading. It put something in there about Herod. Rome rules. But there's a lot of stuff that happens out in the regions and out in the towns of the Roman Empire. Herod was appointed 
by Rome, but he's a long way off. He's over Judea. And as this account shows, he had a great deal of power. And he used it in a ruthless and evil way. The whole chapter is really about Herod as much as it's about the wise men. Just follow along with me. Verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men to secretly ascertain about this star. Verse 13. Herod was about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 16. Herod was furious when he saw that he was tricked by the wise men. Herod sent soldiers to kill the male children of Bethlehem, two years old and under. Verse 19, it was when Herod died that Mary and Joseph now are called back out of Egypt into Israel with Jesus. Herod was a cruel and evil man. He was politically skilled. He was able to remain in power. He was highly intelligent. He was shrewd. And he was evil. Herod caused suffering and sorrow and fear and trauma on so many people who were around him. When I read about Herod, I'm reminded of James chapter 3. That says where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This is worldly wisdom, James says. Jealousy and selfish ambition. But then he says this kind of wisdom is demonic. James uses that word. This kind of wisdom, the wisdom of man which pursues its own ambition, is demonic. Herod is demonic. Now, you might have watched a movie about demonic possession and you think, well, what does that mean? Was he scratching around on stuff and foaming at the mouth? Not at all. He was capable Intelligent, shrewd, skilled, jealous, and full of selfish ambition, demonic, and because of that, there was disorder in every evil practice. He was real. He's a man of history. He did unimaginably horrible things. <coughs> and we can say that right now, Herod is giving account before Almighty God, who is just. But Herod is also representative. He's representative of the kind of world into which Jesus was born. He's representative of the kind of world into which we live, in in which we live. A world of sin and rebellion against God. A world of sin and and rebellion against God's sent Son. And therefore, a world of suffering because of sin. It always goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? We say that all the time around here, Grace. It always goes back to the beginning. We're back to Genesis 3 again. 
In that early chapter of the Bible, there's already a rebellion in the heavenlies going on. There's already a spiritual rebellion that's happened. And now the devil is on earth tempting our first parents, Adam and Eve, and they listened. And they sinned. And they disobeyed the clear instruction of God about what to eat and not to eat. And they disbelieved the consequences that God laid out for this disobedience. And what was the result of that? The result of that was a curse. A curse. Sorrow and suffering came from their sin. Sorrow and suffering in reproduction. The woman's going to have pain in her childbirth. Relationships. All relationships are broken because of this sin. The relationship of man to God. Humans within themselves as individuals. Humans with each other. All of them broken. And a curse on work. It's hard. It's unproductive at times. It's by the sweat of the brow. It's frustrating. Reminds us of James. Disorder and every vile practice comes all the way back from Genesis 3 where it entered. Sorrow and suffering are the result of sin. Now let me be very clear. (laughs) That does not mean, it does not mean that every sorrow and suffering in an individual's life is a direct result of a specific sin that that individual committed. It does not mean that. And often I get asked that. Something bad happens in a person's life and they want to know, what did I do wrong to cause this to happen to me? And the answer may be nothing. So it does not mean that where there is sin and sorrow, it is a direct result of some specific sin that a person has committed. But it does mean that the kind of world we live in, into which Jesus was born, is a world in rebellion against God and therefore a world that experiences brokenness. Sorrow and suffering often result from other people's sin. Verses 2 and 3, so it is with Herod. His selfish ambition, his bitter jealousy, his suspicion, his paranoia led him to be troubled because he hears that there's another king and he's the king and he doesn't want a rival. But then it says that all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. They're probably troubled because they fear what a paranoid Herod will do. And he acts like in this passage where he goes to sends to Bethlehem to kill all the males in that small town probably a dozen or so babies of that age in Bethlehem at that time he's acting like the dragon of Revelation chapter 12 the dragon that's waiting for the woman to give birth so the dragon can devour the male child from the woman but the Lord sweeps up the male child and protects the woman in the wilderness he's demonic and the families of Bethlehem suffer verse 13 their children some of them are killed and the family of Jesus suffered verse 16 their lives are disrupted they've got to flee they're now refugees down in Egypt Not only is this the kind of world that Jesus entered into, this is what happened when Jesus entered the world. 
Now on Christmas Day, you may think this is a bit unsettling. Talk of a dark world, thoughts that God did not spare his son from this world, thoughts that God did not spare his faithful followers from this kind of world, and not even sure that you have and I have the promise that God is going to spare us from these things in this world. It's a bit unsettling. But maybe, (coughs) maybe also there is the appreciation for the honesty. Facing the facts of reality. Because when we do, now we can really see what we need. And now our hearts are open to turn to the one who has brought his son to us to meet that need. Second thing we see is the hand of God on his son and on his people who are in the world. It could be seen that said that the main message of Matthew chapter 2 is God's hand on his son and on his people. That God has a plan and by his own hand he will accomplish that plan. It could be said that the theme of Matthew 2 is the same theme out of Job's mouth in Job 42. Now I know God that you can do all things and that nothing can thwart your purposes. God's hand is seen in this chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod calls the priests and the scribes together secretly. He wants them to tell him, where's this Christ child going to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. Why? Because this is going to fulfill the word of the Lord. The Lord is the one who said through the prophet Micah, he will come from Bethlehem. It is written, he said. At the end of the chapter, Joseph took Jesus to the district of Galilee to the town of Nazareth. Why? To fulfill the word of the Lord. That's why. Because the Lord said that was what was going to happen. In between, there's a flight down to Egypt. Why? To show that Jesus is the true son who found refuge in Egypt and then was called out of Egypt as the suffering servant who would come out and be faithful to God to fulfill the word of the Lord. Because the Lord said that was what was going to happen. Even that tragic moment of the death of the babies and the mourning of the mothers of Bethlehem, verses 16 and 18. They're compared to Rachel, the wife of Jacob, meaning the whole nation of Israel in exile, weeping and mourning. Because the Lord is going to be the deliverer, the ultimate deliverer. God's word and God's will reveal that his sovereignty will carry out his purposes, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering and even in the lives of his people. In this chapter, it's God who is guiding toward fulfillment. What is being fulfilled in this chapter is the worship of Christ by the nations as wise men come from the east. They're representative of the nations. God's getting it done. God's ensuring that his son will be worshiped. God is in control here. We see here that God guided by a star. It's the Lord who caused the wise men to see the star when it rose. It's the Lord who sent the star to rest over the place where the child was so they could come in and worship the child. God guided by dreams. It's God 
who told the wise men through a dream not to return to Herod. It's God who told Joseph in a dream to go down to Egypt and then back out of Egypt to Israel and then back over into Galilee. God is in charge in Matthew chapter 2. If you were writing the headings over Matthew chapter 2, maybe it shouldn't say anything about the wise men. Maybe it shouldn't even say anything about Herod. Maybe it should just say God's in charge. God is there with his son and with his people. Things remain tense. Things remain hard. The sorrow and the suffering remained, but God was there. And the reason God is there with and protecting his son, the reason God is protecting baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 is because this son is going to grow up to fulfill the purposes of Almighty God on a cross where he, this son, will provide through his death our salvation, the salvation of his people. This son will be raised from the dead to offer newness of life to all who believe in him. This son will bring about a newness that will include a new heaven and a new earth. And Herod will not destroy this son. The dragon will not devour the male child because this child is divine, divinely protected with a divine purpose of salvation to accomplish, and it will get done. That is Matthew chapter 2. And the reason God is here with his people is to keep them Not to keep them from the sorrow and the suffering of this world, but to keep them in faith so that they will enter into the world to come that is being prepared by this Son. That is what God is doing. Matthew 2 shows us the theology of God's sovereignty. And it's showing us the point in history of God's salvation that is going to lead to the fulfillment of God's purposes that will be revealed at the second advent of Christ. The sorrow and the suffering of this world are no threat whatsoever to the work of God in Christ to get to that world to come and to get us into it. Which leads us to the third thing today. The world to come. For God's people who are in God's Son. God is with us, His people in this world. He is with us, getting us to the next world. God's people are the people of faith. God's people are the people who believe and receive his son. We say, (coughs) what about the world? Didn't the angels say joy to the world and peace on earth? Yes, they did. But in Luke 2, they said joy to the people of God. The people of God is an ever-expanding number of people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive the Son of God as the Savior and as the Lord. And the, the open invitation is there for you to believe and come into the people of God and have this promise of joy. 
Peace among those with whom he is well pleased is what Luke says. These are those who hear the word by faith and receive it and honor the Son. So, what is our joy? <coughs> what is our peace? It's a joy and a peace that exists. It's a joy and a peace that coexists with our sorrows and our sufferings in this world. Here is one of the greatest lessons of Christian discipleship. God's peace, God's joy, coexisting with sorrow and suffering. Coexisting. Not completely replacing, but coexisting with sorrow and suffering. What is this joy and peace of ours? It's a joy and a peace that overshadows does not completely remove, but overshadows the sorrows and sufferings to keep us in hope. <coughs> it's a joy and a peace that exists alongside the grieving of the loss of a loved one and many, many other forms of grieving. It coexists, but it overshadows to keep us hopeful until the day comes. What is this joy in this peace? It is based on a promise that because God protected the son, the baby, his son in Matthew chapter 2, the one, this child who grew up before him like a young plant out of parched land, this one, this baby who had no former majesty that we should even notice him, this one who grew up to be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, this one who bore our sorrows and our grief in a, in, on an inglorious cross, this one who paid our penalty, the penalty for our sins, so that by grace, through faith, we would be saved, this promise that he will also keep us. He kept his son to fulfill that purpose. He will keep us to get us to that purpose. Now that young plant, tender, shoot, despised, and rejected man of sorrows, suffering servant is reigning in glory. He is now preparing a place to receive his people when he returns again. Matthew chapter 2 is the first advent where Jesus came into a world of sin and suffering and sorrow, and he took it all upon himself. He took all of our sin he took all of our sorrows, all of our griefs upon himself on the cross. And Revelation chapter 21 is the second advent, the second coming of Jesus in a new world where there's a new heaven and a new earth. You don't know how tempted I am right now to preach a whole other sermon on Matthew chapter 21. But instead, I'm just going to read a few verses to you. John said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, why was the sea no more? Because the sea, they understood metaphorically to be the place of chaos. No more. The sea will be no more. Why? Because the curse is gone. See, I'm preaching. I'm supposed to read. <clears throat> and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, church, and Jesus. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen, the dwelling place of God 
is with man. Emmanuel, the final, great, complete Emmanuel will be there then. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is what we're waiting for. The second advent. And we're faithful until it happens. And we're faithful because the first advent has happened. Christ has come, Emmanuel, he is with us. There's a verse we sing, we sang it this morning, just a few moments ago, Joy of the World. We sing it every year at Christmas. Every year during Advent we sing it, but there's a line in it that is about the second advent. It's this one. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground where what are you hearing what are you hearing right now are you hearing genesis 3 no more he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found that sin in the garden genesis 3 from which all sorrow and curse came has been paid for and forgiven by the grace of christ on the cross And those sorrows and those sufferings and the curse that is found in this world will pass away, Revelation said. It will pass away and the blessings of Christ will flow and chase them away and they will be no more. This is our hope. And there we will sing a new song. Psalm 98, Justin led us in a moment ago. We'll sing a new song. When? At the second advent when he comes. We'll sing a new song. And what will that song be? Our God is with us. So today, Christmas Day, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Believe on Christ. Trust Christ. Receive Christ. Give your life to Christ. Come to Christ. Cast your sorrows on Christ. Cast them there. I I have no promise for you. I told you this was a sermon of reality. I have no promise for you that your sorrows and your sufferings are going to go away. I cannot promise that. But we can say by the word of God, we can cast them on him. We can yoke up with him. He'll walk with you. He'll carry them with you. He'll be with you. Cast them. Cast them onto Christ. Stay with Christ. He's with you. Stay with him. Don't wander away. Oh, my heart's heavy this weekend for people I know who've wandered away from Christ. They've heard the good news. They maybe at one time have even said yes to it, and now they're wandering. Don't wander. Stay. Stay with the church. One of the evidences of staying with Christ is staying with the church. Don't believe that. Don't believe that nonsense. That you can follow Jesus without being a part of his people? Don't believe that. Stay. He's with you. Stay with him. Be with someone. 
in their sorrows and suffering. Make a phone call. Make a visit. Send an email. Be with people in their sorrows and their sufferings. He's with us. And then let's together love his appearing, long for his appearing. We're with all of those who love and long for the appearing of Jesus Christ with no shame and no embarrassment. Emmanuel, God is with us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this Christmas morning. Thank you that you are with us.